this week on the Backtable Podcast. I learned that a simpler approach might be best. Trying to create hydrodissection just makes the procedure two, three hours long. Anesthesia gets frustrated. You start to obscure your margins and you're like, oh, this is a great case to, to present. No, right? it looks like a mess. So I try to take advantage of the physics of the probe that I'm working with. And there, maybe from environmental factors, which is one of the things that I like, uh, I'm always excited about, you know, not all livers are made the same, you know, a fatty liver is not going to perform well as a fibrotic liver, as a very watery liver, et cetera, et cetera. And most importantly, like I just said before, I try to make it as simple as possible. I look at what is the shortest access, what is my, the shortest and the quickest way for me to get into that tumor, and I do it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular and minimally invasive. If you're a new listener, welcome. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is www.backtable.com. Very easy. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a written review, or reach out to us on social media. Let us know how we can make this podcast a better resource for our endovascular community, and we're going to do our best to make that happen. I would like to take a minute to thank our sponsor today. Medtronic is the proud and sole sponsor of the following podcast, Preserve Their Future. The new imprint HP ablation generator offers up to 150 watts of energy, allowing you to achieve large spherical ablations while minimizing collateral tissue damage all with a single antenna. Achieving complete tumor coverage is critical to success management of patients with non-resectable liver tumors, and so is preserving healthy liver tissue. References for the above statements are available upon request. We hope you enjoy the following podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about ablation and specifically microwave ablation with Dr. Dries Ricey. Dries, welcome to the show and thanks for coming on. Will you just take a moment and introduce yourself to the audience and give a little background on uh, what you do and what your practice looks like? Well, first of all, uh, Chris, thank you for having me on. It is a pleasure. I've trained at the uh, State University of New York, uh, SUNY Downstate at Brooklyn. I've had a little bit of uh, unusual training track called, uh, called the direct pathway. Interventional radiologists could be rather familiar with it because it was the pilot program to test out how the new DRIR training was going to work out. So that was kind of exciting. Uh, I'm also a board certified in internal medicine doc. That was part of the deal. And one of the unique, unique things about my track that I did in Brooklyn. Other than that, I mean, it's pretty much the same. You know, I did my diagnostic radiology, which was baked in within the direct pathway, did with my interventional radiology, and I did everything at SUNY Downstate. Nice. And when did you finish up training? Like when was your last year of training? My last year of training, although my fellowship year was 2012, my last year of training was 2013. That was just one of the unique things about the old direct pathway. That's right. So for the younger audience members, before there was the IRDR, or basically before there was the IR residency, there were guys uh, like Dries who were basically uh, forging the path forward for us with the direct pathway, which was like basically the pilot program for what we have now and the training program. So that's awesome. So your current practice, tell the audience just where you're at now and kind of what your IR practice looks like on a day-to-day. Well, the University of Kentucky Interventional Radiology Program is, it's a rather typical large tertiary center, very busy, very heavy in interventional oncology and a lot of bread and butter kind of work. One of the unique things about it is that we do a tremendous amount of uh, ablation all sorts of oblations. Uh, we happen to be one of the busiest, if not the busiest ablation center in the Southeast slash our area of the Midwest, averaging 350 to 400 ablations per year. So that's something that I could say I'm pretty proud of, uh, to be part of that practice. It's pretty large, uh, especially our new facility uh, that we opened this year. Like we have, uh, eight angio rooms, two dedicated CTs, one angio CT. Nick Saris room, dedicated ultrasound rooms, you know, even our techs, like we have dedicated interventional ultrasound techs, dedicated interventional CT techs on top of the usual, uh, interventional angio suite techs. Holy cow. Did you say eight angio suites all for IR? Uh, well, uh, yes, yes. I mean, you know, two of them are, uh, for our neuro IR colleagues, but yes. Wow. Two dedicated CTs? Two dedicated CTs. That is correct. Wow. 
that's like a topic in and of itself. So I think there are a lot of like um, people who are in academics right now that are uh, a little jealous of your situation, but uh, good for you guys. Good for you guys. All right. So we want to talk about ablation. Specifically, we're going to narrow it down to microwave ablation. Do you want to talk about like what your ablation uh, practice kind of looks like globally? You know, just uh, give us like a, a basic rundown of like in a given week, like how many ablations you're doing and where exactly do those like parse out in terms of like, is it HCC? Is it METS? Is it uh, renal cell primary? Like, I'm just kind of curious of like how the ablation practice is kind of shaping up. Yeah, our ablation uh, practice is rather typical. Uh, you know, it's large majority liver ablations, then a good amount of kidney ablations and the far in between lung ablations and the typical MSK ablations of bony lesions. As far as how much do we do, we probably average six liver ablations a week, two to three ablations, renal ablations a week. HCC, and we looked at this retrospectively, HCC represents 70% of our liver ablations. Obviously, RCC or potential RCC represents 100% of our renal ablations. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other stuff is just the random metastatic lesion, the lesion that we're not really sure, something in the lung. So probably total 68 minimum ablations we're going to do every week. Okay. And a lot of that's HCC. So I assume, and, and I kind of uh, knew this ahead of time, but UK uh, has a big transplant service, assuming. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's really the pipeline that, uh, that feeds our, our service is we have a very busy transplant uh, center. They do a lot of, a lot of transplants. And uh, I would say, I mean, in the state of Kentucky, you know, HCC cirrhosis is as common as, as the flu. You know, in the days that the flu used to be common, uh, now it's not even common anymore, right? So, I mean, that kind of fits our pipeline. You know, our, our community, unfortunately, is very underserved. Uh, so a lot of patients reach us when they're beyond Milan. I mean, some of them are within Milan. So uh, we're very honored to serve a really important role in the state, offering patients options that otherwise they might not be, that might not be surgical candidates. So it's, it's really an honor to be part of this practice. That's awesome. So I thought we would drill down specifically on microwave, but um, actually this is this is probably as good a place as any. In terms of your ablations, how much is microwave? How much is RF? How much is, is cryo? So when, when I started uh, my practice at the University of Kentucky, uh, it was the good old days of radiofrequency ablation. And I think I have the honor to call it that way of doing the, the last radiofrequency ablation. I still remember it. I recall it very, very vividly. I wasn't very happy with it. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was successful and all. I still remember the patient giving me a CD, thanking me for helping him. Uh, so I, I still remember it. But uh, we've switched completely to microwave ablation when it comes to liver. Okay. So all our livers are microwave ablation. When it comes to obviously either spinal ablations or bony ablations, I mean, we're still using radiofrequency ablation. Okay. For the lung, it really depends. You know, there aren't that many cases. Some people will do cryo. Some people will do microwave. You know, it really, that's still a debate, you know, until we have like some concrete data to tell us which, what should we really be doing. Uh, although the data out there still says that, you know, it may not even matter what you're doing when it comes to uh, local tumor control. When it comes to renal lesions, um, I've really uh, shift my, my practice towards more microwave, more and more and more and more. There isn't really much out there. Hopefully one day I'll have enough time and write what should maybe can be considered strongly for microwave ablations of renal lesions. A lot of my colleagues to do, do a lot of cryo. I mean, I built the cryo service at the University of Kentucky, but at the same time, now I'm shifting. I'm, I'm shifting gears towards microwave ablations as I find that, you know, it does have a role. It does have a rather useful role. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let's zero in particularly on liver. It sounds like that's maybe the robust part of your practice. And I think that's an easy uh, thing for people to wrap their minds around uh, as far as uh, microwave ablation with either primary or metastatic lesions. So if you can just start and walk us through uh, pre-procedure. So how do you plan whenever you're approaching a tumor? So this is we can get into the clinical role, but before we do that, just um, talk about what you're looking for in a tumor, what you're looking around the tumor, and how you're kind of planning your procedure around like the anatomy of what you're about to ablate. Most cases are reviewed during one of our tumor boards. It's a gain consensus, it's a gain buy-in among all the different practitioners. 
uh, that we are indeed choosing the right uh, treatment for that patient and, you know, to allow all the different perspectives to be considered. Uh, we like to have a pre-procedural liver CT or MRI within two to four weeks. You don't want to be surprised by a tumor that looked like it was two centimeters. And then the day of ablation is like five centimeters. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's a different story. Do you have a preference on CT or MRI or whatever cross-sectional you can get? Not really, to be honest yeah. with you. I mean, I think maybe I have certain bias towards having a CT. Obviously, it's not, it's not the best thing for imaging, you know, HCC. Probably MR is best, but personally, I have my own bias. I find it easier to correlate with the same day CT because I'm doing CT fluoroscopy for the ablation. So I think I like it, but I am happy to have anything, to be honest with you. CT okay. or MRI, very happy. I mean, ideally, you want a child PUA patient uh, or a very early stage uh, zero on if you go by BCLC. That's ideally. But am I dealing with ideal cases? <laughs> no, by any means. Any means. Child view patients um, are, are obviously considered. Uh, they might require more than microwave ablation. You want to go easy on them. And they sh they'll send you a child QB patient who has five lesions. You're like, wow. I mean, if I ablate them all the same day, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess I could. But uh, at the same time, I try to like a lot of times just split the, uh, we'll do it over two sessions. You know, you have three in the left, two in the right. We'll split them in over two weeks. Or sometimes we'll combine them with other local regional therapy. You know, you have like terrible mass in the left lobe, non-surgical non candidate, and you'll have a, a lesion that we're going to ablate on the right. So most of our patients are, the majority when we looked at our numbers are actually child QB. And I found a bunch of Cs who just made it through. Sure. So whenever you're evaluating a tumor, so uh, take away like maybe the infiltrative HCC picture, but something that's kind of well-defined towards the periphery, will you talk a little bit about um, how you decide on probe placement, uh, the tract of the probes, or basically the approach that you're going to take, and which kind of probes that you use, if if that's relevant to kind of how you think about uh, tumor ablation. Well, with time, um, I learned to appreciate the simplicity of having a one needle device. To me, that that became the first thing. You know, I want a one needle device. I don't want to. You know, I do a lot of cryoablation, and trying to bracket a tumor sounds very easy. And we all know from IRE nano knife, it's not that easy. It takes a long time. The needle, the deeper you go, it's like all over the place. So I appreciate the a one needle device. I take advantage of, you know, that is always a critical organ. Not always, but that is, you know, often you have like a critical structure that may be at risk, even if it's just, you know, a major bile duct or the gallbladder. So you try to take advantage of the, uh, the fact that the most predictable area will be in front of the needle. So I'll, it's kind of intuitive, uh, but ablation practitioners, we now, you know, direct your, the point, <laughs> direct your needle towards the, uh, towards the uh, critical organ. You'll have more control and you know pretty much how far it's going to travel beyond that. You know, there's a lot, uh, a lot of things that people recommend about, uh, well, hydrodissection, remove this. Uh, avoid the pleura, avoid the diaphragm. Honestly, in my practice, and we've done like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, I learned that a simpler approach might be best. Trying to create hydrodissection just makes the procedure two, three hours long. Anesthesia gets frustrated. You start to obscure your margins and you're like, oh, this is a great case to, to present. <laughs> no, right? it looks like a mess. So I try to take advantage of the physics of the probe that I'm working with. You know, I mean, I look look at my critical organ, see what it is, my critical structure, probably direct my needle at it, align my long axis with the long axis of the tumor. The long axis uh, of the tumor and uh, the long axis of the probe itself is probably where you're going to get most of your ablation, where the shorter axis, the side lobes, are probably the ones that are going to suffer from maybe a little bit of heat sink here and there, maybe from environmental factors, which is one of the things that I like, uh, I'm always excited about. You know, not all livers are made the same. You know, a fatty liver is not going to perform well as a fibrotic liver, as a very watery liver, et cetera, et cetera. And most importantly, like I just said before, I try to make it as simple as possible. Go from here, grow from there, try this track, try that track. I look at what is the shortest axis, what is my, the shortest and the quickest way for me to get into that tumor, and I do it. I like that. Keep it simple. Um, there are two things that I wanted to highlight for an audience because a lot of good tips kind of came out. And that was one that you take care to direct the tip of the needle 
towards your most critical organ. So if you if there's nothing in the way and it's all liver and the only thing that is like right beyond the tumor is a little bit of gallbladder, then you direct your needle towards the gallbladder. Is that right? Do I hear you correctly? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing I wanted to uh, uh, highlight was you take advantage of the long axis of the tumor. So if you have a three by two centimeter HCC, then the long axis of your needle will go along that three centimeter axis of the tumor because you get a, typically an ablation zone that burns further back along the needle than in less so around the side lobes. Yeah, that is correct. And, and we all know that, you know, all, uh, not all probes are made the same. But if, if there is one thing that they have in common is that they all have a longer axis than their shorter axis. No probe out there is a perfect uh, circle. Uh, you have from the spherical, which is good. I like my spherical as close to a circle as possible to rod-like, which is for me not very ideal. But if they have one thing in common is you could align their long axis along the probe with the uh, long axis of the tumor. So let's talk a little bit about margins. So actually, there's two things I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about results in a fibrotic liver and a fatty liver. But first, I wanted to talk about margins. So will you kind of talk about maybe for the the younger uh, interventionalists or some of the trainees out there, you're trying to ablate the tumor, but also talk about how margins play a role in your ablation zone. Yeah, I mean, if you just go by the data, what does the data tell us? The data tells us uh, if you're dealing with HCC, you need to ensure that you get 0.5 centimeter surgical margin. And if you're dealing with colorectal, you need one centimeter. And you can find data also that says one centimeter for both, one centimeter for HCC and one centimeter for colorectal. But you know what? Where does that data come from? Where does that data come from? That data comes from surgical resection, open surgical resection, where you have the benefit of looking right directly at the tumor or using beautiful high-resolution images of an intra-op ultrasound. And I don't feel like anybody has ever raised that question. You know, where is that data coming from? And why, why did I start asking myself that question? Because my surgeons started to be, started becoming super happy with me when I started, oh yeah, I gave you two centimeter margin. And they're like, and I thought they were going to be like, hey, Dries, Take it easy. This guy doesn't have too much liver. No, no, no. They were cheering me up. They were like, oh, that looks great. That is awesome. That is beautiful. With time, you know, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. They started seeing that those patients actually did rather okay. You know, the extra centimeter didn't make them too sick. That extra centimeter ensured they didn't have very early recurrences or they didn't have any recurrences at all in that surgical bed where some of my more junior colleagues may have had, let's just say, and don't tell them how this is just between you and me. Sure. I'm hoping this is a secret. Yeah, may you, have you had, being the back table audience, I got you. They uh, have had, you know, a little bit more recurrences with a more conservative 0.5 surgical margin. So, you know, I started getting a little bit wilder and excited about ensuring, you know what, I'm going to give you a good surgical margin. I haven't written up any paper about it, but that made me think, you know, we're going by this data that has absolutely nothing to do with percutaneous microwave ablation. Maybe I'm up to something. So, but that, that also raises the point. So whenever you're talking about margins, I think the other side of the coin is preservation of healthy liver, or maybe not healthy liver tissue, preservation of liver tissue, right? Um, and so it's a, it's a balancing act, but what basically in, in your practice, what you say or how you've approached it is, if you're going to ablate it, you might as well come in and ablate it and give them nice clean margins. And if you're dealing with child, or child pew A and child pew B, then that's just the cost of doing business. Yeah, no, no, correct. And and often, honestly, one centimeter, two centimeters. Sure. It's not it's not what we think. My my surgeon colleagues who have been, I go with them and do intraoperative uh, microwave ablation once in a while, and I see and I see when they do their resections. It has nothing to do with our twenty, thirty cubical centimeters of ablation, really, that we do. I mean, I mean, when they chop the liver, they chop it. Gotcha. And obviously, that's why you're concerned those patients might decompensate. But our ablations, even if you take it maximum, oh, I, I have a four or five centimeter ablation zone, it's nothing compared with what they resect. So a lot of our practice really is based on data that really just doesn't apply to what we do. The topic that I want to go back to uh, before I forget is ablations in a cirrhotic liver versus ablations in a steatotic liver. How those differ and how do you approach those? Do I approach them any differently? I actually don't. Uh, I don't really do anything different for them. I'm just cognizant of it. Uh, we, we, we wrote a paper about how ablation, uh, we wanted to see, are there any predictors for the success of your ablation? And we found that 
uh, different uh, tumor environments, basically background liver, might actually affect the likelihood that my, you have early recurrence or not. And it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, uh, a fatty liver, if you just go by the physics of microwave ablation, last water molecules, probably you are, you will have last microwave uh, energy delivery efficiency. Uh, that's just how it works. Microwave ablation energy is more um, effective. The more water molecules, it'll be more effective. The last water molecules, it'll be effective. Uh, same thing for fibrotic livers. And one of the, you know, if you look at all the, most of the microwave ablation devices, you know, the data you receive is based on ex vivo healthy livers. Uh, so that made me think, well, I, you know, I get this company that shows me, you know, like I'm basically, I'm in the Society of Interventional Radiology Annual Conference and I'm in an ablation workshop and I'm trying, you know, I go there and try one of the ablation probes and I'm like, oh, wow, I just ablated five by five. This is beautiful. But I called in a second. This is a totally healthy liver. This is not a cirrhotic liver full of fat or full of fibrotic nodules. It's not going to be five by five. And that got me thinking, what factors in the underlying liver might affect my uh, microwave ablation efficiency? And obviously, there are several. The fact that it's a, a live liver, the fact that it is a diseased liver, the fact that it is a fatty liver. I haven't looked at what, what if it's an iron, uh, you know, overloaded liver. We haven't really considered how these uh, underlying liver pathologies might actually affect your ablation, your final ablation zone. So anecdotally, do you find that, I mean, excluding healthy livers, which virtually or infrequently happen, but comparing uh, fatty liver to cirrhotic liver, which one do you get better ablation zones in? And just anecdotally. Uh, cirrhotic livers, non-fatty non livers. So there's another thing that I wanted to touch upon was how do you get such big ablation zones with like two centimeter margins with one probe? First, I will have to say depends on the tumor itself. Okay. All right. That's fair. <laughs> if it's... If it's a 15 millimeter uh, lesion, then sure. you could accomplish it rather easily. Uh, but yeah, we're talking about probably like a, how you're going to accomplish that with a three, three and a half centimeter. So, because then you're pushing the uh, ability of the micro, most microwave probes out, out there are going to give you anywhere between 3.54 nowadays, between four and five, I will say. That's, that's pretty much it. And that's the data we are provided with based on ex vivo data, which is not sure. the real data. I mean, right, it's right. in vivo data, you're going to lose probably 0.8 to 1.2 centimeters. Uh, how are you going to do it? Well, this is not endorsed by any of the companies or by the device uh, that I use. This, this simply comes from doing a lot of cases and wanting to help patients and accomplish things that doesn't seem like uh, I could accomplish just by following the IFUs. So one thing that is very common in my practice is to overlap ablation zones. And how do you overlap ablation zones? Well, uh, it, is, it is a skill. You have to overlap them correctly to achieve a good ablation zone that doesn't look like all over the place. Uh, how do you overlap an ablation zone? Well, first you, 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 you accomplish your first ablation. And your first ablation, depending on what type of product you're using, is going to give you sort of a predictable uh, circle-like, spherical, or oblong first ablation, maybe 3.5 by 4 or 4.5 maximum. But you're dealing with a lesion that's 4 point something. So you want to, the only way you're going to ablate it perfectly and achieve a surgical manger is margin is you're going to have to ablate more. So it is really a skill of how to, it depends where the tumor is. That's the first thing. Uh, where in the uh, 3D dimension is the extent of the tumor that you haven't covered. If it's along the long axis of the tumor, that's actually the easy, the easy part. All you have to do is pull back and perform another ablation. Uh, if it's superior, inferior, left, right, I think you could imagine what I'm trying to mention, then you're going to have to have some skill uh, to direct your needle appropriately. Uh, one thing that I, I has lowered, uh, I, I totally believe, because I think we just have such good results and we haven't dealt with any significant complications, any major complications, is uh, I teach uh, most of my junior partners and something that I do in my practice, which is try to limit the number of new liver punctures. 
you have the ability to pull back a little bit and direct your needle. That's why we have a gantry that can oblique up to uh, some of the 15 degrees, 30 degrees. Uh, if you are using CTE or ultrasound, you, you easily can follow uh, your needle in an oblique plane. Try to do everything through the same puncture. Try to be cognizant of where the tumor that may be beyond your tumor margin B and pull back and direct towards that new area and perform a new ablation. So overlapping is just performing uh, secondary and tertiary ablations in order to expand your final ablation zones. And I said, preferably without pulling the needle back completely out of the liver. Sometimes I do it. Sometimes I perform a second puncture, but I try to limit the number of new punctures. And I have to say, if we've done pretty well, uh, ablating up to seven, seven centimeter lesions. And I've seen other colleagues in the rest of the country ablating even beyond that. So if you have a lesion uh, that's around five centimeters, you know you're, you know you're not going to be able to get there with one probe. Is your approach still to start on one end of the tumor and just kind of ablate, uh, like kind of march sequentially? I am just making, uh, making it up that it's left to right, but it could be front to back. But you just kind of march from one margin all the way to the other side, like with um, a single probe, but ablating at different sites along the tumor? Correct. I mean, okay. it's honestly as simple as you just put it. What about, so what's, what's the downside? Cause I have to say that this like, doesn't, um, this is, it's different from my practice in that most of the time, if I have a lesion that is three centimeters or more. And so I'm looking at, you know, a five centimeter ablation zone, I'll just bracket the tumor and then do a single ablation. So why, why well, I think I kind of heard your answer, but so why not just bracket the tumor? I mean, cause even though like having a single probe is simple, but also like placing two probes in parallel is I mean, you know, I think it's in the skill, in the wheelhouse. I agree with you. I mean, it's something that I did then uh, my radio frequency ablation days, uh, when I used multiple probes, but I think I just became addicted to the simplicity of one probe and my anesthesiologist have become addicted to seeing me do an ablation in, you know, like even the most complex ones where I have to do multiple sequential ablations in under, you know, my, the average ablation for me is 20 minutes, including everything. Uh, if it's a little bit complicated and I have to do overlapping sequential ablations, it might take 45 minutes. So I, I, obviously at the end, it comes to what you become comfortable with, what devices you have available. And, um, I think that's really about it. I mean, if bracketing works for you, then stick to it. Sure. Sure. So going back a little bit to, uh, ablation, uh, basically ablation times, like time of procedure. So whenever you're ablating, um, can you speak a little bit about the temperature at which you ablate? Are you trying to hit a target temperature and how long that you keep the probe active? Am I trying to achieve a certain temperature? I actually don't have, I have stopped a long time ago monitoring the, 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 the temperature. Sure. Um, I think I did it early on with temperature control and I learned that and most of the time I'm achieving anything uh, between 70, 80 degrees, which made me think, uh, okay, you know, I'm, after a hundred cases, why do I need to keep doing this? So I believe that the, what I was doing was rather predictable and reliable, and it was the same thing over and over and over. So I stopped doing it. And how long do you ablate for? So like there's temperature and you say, oh, don't really pay attention to that. And just to clarify for the audience, 70 or 80 centigrade, uh, clearly it's not 70 or 80 Fahrenheit. And then, and then also uh, like, how long do you ablate? It depends on, on, on the lesion, right? I mean, everything is temperature curve time-based. Sure. Most of my cases, I mean, we know one thing about microwave ablation is most of the active heating happens there in the initial three minutes, between three to four minutes, depending on what devices are, are out there. And beyond four or five minutes, mostly, you know, while it's still active, the uh, active diffusion of microwave energy, uh, you're benefiting mostly of the passive diffusion of heat. Uh, so most of my cases, you know, the bread and butter cases are like anywhere between three and four minutes. Uh, you know, you kind of like biggish tumors, you're going to have to push it to 10 minutes to maximize benefit. Uh, and the IFUs, you know, that's where they stop. At least for the device I use, they stop at 10 minutes. Okay. Uh, have I went beyond? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> uh, have I achieved, you know, bigger uh, ablation margins? I think so. You know, just, you know, maybe a few millimeters here and there, two, three millimeters, you know, obviously, you know, it's like beating a dead horse. You probably have already, 
achieves the maximum ablation you can achieve and just, you can keep it for one hour and it's not going to become 20 centimeters by any means. Yeah, you know, you can gain two or three millimeters hair here. Uh, you may or might not. Remember what we said before, not all livers perform the same. You got your fatty livers who are not going to do well. We're going to underperform. You get a fibr fibrotic livers with like a nice oven effect who are going to overperform. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, being a physician, being an interventionalist is an art. You can just stick to your IFUs or you can just try to help your patient the best you can. And, you know, if it goes well, then you stick to it. If it doesn't go well, you're like, eh, maybe I need to do something different. Yep. Clearly you have like kind of a feel for it. And I think whenever you, that that's what comes with doing a whole lot of ablations. But one of the things I wanted to highlight is that, you know, you kind of mentioned two different time points. You either take it to 10 minutes because you're trying to get the max out of your probe. You're trying to get every inch or every millimeter out of the probe, or really the workhorse and the timing is probably within the first five minutes. And, and that seems to be what a lot of people talk about. Um, has that been your experience also? Oh, no, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah. And let's talk a little bit about the modality of which you used for your ablations. And I, I think that's very operator dependent, but I, I think I heard you allude to it earlier, but like, how do you do your ablations? Is it a combination of CT, ultrasound, CT fluoro? Yeah. Um, I guess at, at this point I can call myself a dinosaur, uh, a very young one, if I might say, but, um, it, it's a little bit unusual, but I, I am fully relying on CT, uh, which, which is a little bit unusual. And I know that because, you know, uh, my, most of my junior partners are like almost like appalled by the idea that I do all my cases under CT and they're like, whoa. Uh, but then they see like, oh, how did you do that case in 20 minutes? I'm like, I don't know. Uh, I can't explain it. It just happens. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I am fully reliant on CT. I am fully rel incredibly reliant on landmarks. You know, I just became like intuitive for me. Just to look at uh, the pre-procedural imaging, look at my anatomy, look at my hepatic veins, portal veins, bile ducts, calcifications, clips, spine, anything I could use to guide my needle. I mean, I use like things that I'm not even aware I'm using there in the ablation. Sure. And, you know, initial CC placement, two minutes, ablate, we're done. Uh, if there is sequential uh, ablation involved, it's going to need a little bit more time. That's really what, it, what my ablation is. Uh, I try to optimize things with the, my anesthesiologist. Uh, I try to optimize positioning. I try to optimize tidal volumes. I try to optimize what type of ventilator settings they're using. You know, I cannot do a lot of micromanagement. That's a little bit atypical in order to make my procedure as efficient as possible and my needle placement with CT guidance only as, as quick as possible. Uh, my junior colleagues and, you know, I'm supporting them as a division chief, uh, I've obtained for them two very nice units, uh, that use, uh, ultrasound navigational guidance for needle placement. They love it. And that's really what 50% of my partners, uh, use currently, which is initial navigational ultrasound placement. And then obviously the ablation is monitored under CT fluoroscopy. That's pretty slick. I've seen some of the uh, newer ultrasound units where you can upload uh, like a PET or an MRI. And also going back to like how you kind of do your procedure, um, sometimes I'm a little bit CT heavy depending on the lesion, but I think it, I think that also speaks to that. I also prefer a CT going in like a pre-procedural CT. I mean, I'll, I'll take anything. I'm like, you I'll take anything that I can get, but sometimes it's nice whenever you're doing your ablation under CT to have a CT to optimize like for landmarks. After you've done your ablation, do you do anything afterwards as far as, so you think you have a good ablation zone based on landmarks. You've monitored uh, periodically with CT, kind of looking at the ablation zone. One of the challenges to me that comes up is once you microwave one ablation zone, that then when you're moving your needle, things are a little bit distorted. Like, you know, the, the, your, your initial look at the liver is usually the best before even a probe is in the body. And so what do you do to help, um, help, help yourself plan for that next ablation zone where you're about to march the needle along? Can you clarify a little bit of that question? Is it regarding, uh, ablating sequential ablation of the same lesion or are you trying to ablate a different lesion somewhere else? Actually, I feel like it applies to both. Um, but like, let's just stick with one lesion. When you're trying to march your way along the lesion, I feel like once you've like once you've put in the probe and like done an ablation zone, everything starts to look a little bit funny. And so, do you just kind of know that your needle placement is the one true thing, and then everything's referenced off the original needle placement? 
I, I think I understand what the, what you're referring to. So, you know, ablation desiccates the tissue. You know, your first ablation is going to shrivel that ablation zone. The capsule is going to look different. Things just change. Uh, I think I take a, a first snapshot of, of what things are. And because of my heavy reliance of landmarks, I stick to my landmarks. I stick to my gut. I will repeat another CT. That combination of my initial gut of where the landmarks, where the, the uh, second ablation was supposed to be and the repeat ablation is really what I do. So it's, I think it's a complex, hard to explain cognitive effort of, of hitting it right on the nail. And if I think I'm doing well, just depending on the results, but I think it will be very hard. If somebody asked me like, can you write it up on a piece of paper? I'm like, I can't, uh, it just seems to work. Whatever I do, you know, just. Uh, have a very good idea of what you're doing initially and where things are, when you're going to go. Uh, and you already know what's going to happen to that uh, ablation uh, surgical field. So you kind of have an idea where things are going to go. And I could say that ultrasound, my, that's one of the weaknesses of ultrasound. After you mess up that ablation zone the first time, things are kind of like, eh, I don't know, I'm not sure. There is a lot of artifacts that pop in, you know, with all that gas. Yeah, I'll, I'll second that, that once once the ablation zone is really, or once the ablation's kind of gotten going, ultrasound can sometimes go out of the window. You know, I think it speaks to um, whether you, you've done a lot of these or a handful of these, and just uh, clearly you have like a good feel for it. But one of the things that I'll do uh, pretty commonly is, you know, you can expect things around your ablation zone to contract, not always, but different things around the liver that are outside of your ablation zone will kind of give you an indication uh, whether things are contracting towards your ablation zone. And then usually what I'll try and do is I try and reference my next uh, sequential ablation if I'm going to move that needle relative to my needle. So I know the needle position was true. If it was on the left side of a tumor, then if I'm going to move, I mean, clearly I want to move relative to the initial needle placement. So I'll move it over a centimeter and a half relative to where the needle's at following the ablation. So I wanted also to get your opinion. After you've done the ablation, do you get any imaging with the patient on the table to not just imaging, but uh, post-contrasted imaging to take a look at your ablation zone? I was going to actually mention that as a clarification to your previous question, because I don't want to make it sound like I'm Superman. I don't need anything. I have no, these that's, eyes. that's what it sounds like to me. It sounds yeah. like you're Superman, right? I, I have these eyes that can see everything and I know everything. <laughs> I do it with my eyes closed. That's you know, right. so sometimes I use contrast, you know, of when course. I'm like, you know, I'm not really sure. I don't, is this the right vein, the left vein, which branch of the vein? You know, like, you know, and my ticks will give me like a look of like, oh, Dr. Ricey, no, you need more. No, you need contrast. Okay. Ha, ha, ha. So, you know, sometimes I use contrast. Like if I don't, if I feel like I don't have a good hang of the case, uh, I cannot clarify. You know, there are these livers where like the soft tissue contrast is just terrible. I mean, I keep staring at it and you're like, I don't see anything. You know, I'm a heavy, heavy user of uh, liver windows during ablation. I really suggest that people take advantage of it. It shows you a lot more than you, more than you will see in a normal in the normal soft tissue window. But uh, as far as post procedural contrasts, I don't think I've done one for four or five years. I will say that uh, some of my colleagues do. The majority don't, just because the majority are just going to have fallen into my practice. And if you review, there is no guidelines about it. And I think in the standards of SIR practice, it specifically said some practitioners might do contrast while others don't. So there is no support for doing post-procedural imaging or not, because it does have its pitfalls too. And we've discovered that from uh, the literature on uh, early contrast imaging of uh, renal lesions. And I'm not sort of comparing apples to oranges here. You know, if you see some kind of rim enhancement here and there, what does it mean? I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just uh, uh, reactive. So when do I do it? And when I used to do it, I used to do it before when I used to have a gut bad feeling of like, ah, I think maybe he's bleeding. I think I crossed some branch. So that's really what I used to kind of like, let's just take a look. And that kind of almost gave me like a, a feedback of like, yeah, actually I'm doing well. I actually am doing well. And that made me do it less and less and less to where I just stopped doing it. Sure. It wasn't, it didn't seem like it was changing overall what you were going to do next and then kind of become superfluous. Can we talk a little bit about specifically when you're in the liver and how you approach lesions where you know you're going to have some heat sink? So 
a lesion that either uh, brackets uh, a blood vessel or is like wedged in between a portal and a hepatic vein? Like, how do you approach those? And, and is your approach any different, truly? I think the first thing that I tell myself is, ah, you're not going to have heat sick. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just deny it. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's microwave ablation. I like my device. I think it's it's a happy it's a happy relationship. Uh, but you know, once in a while, they're like, "Yeah, that perfect lesion that's perfectly bracketed by the middle hepatic and the right hepatic." Sure. And then you're like, "Oh, gee, I see some margins. Ah, I wish I, I I wish I was a little bit more aggressive." And what do I do? You know, I think I've seen a recent paper published this year. I don't remember who was the author. Where actually, I don't remember who was the author. Where they actually recommended hepatic venous occlusion during ablation. And I was like, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, I guess I'll have to see a hundred cases to believe that <laughs> the addition of that step to my praxis may be beneficial. I guess you'll need a Nixiris CT, Angio CT to do it. Uh, but really, what do I do? Uh, I honestly, I'm usually more aggressive. At the cost of potentially, you know, I might form some good thrombus in that vein too. Sure. You know, I mean, you might thrombose it. So I think I'm a little bit more aggressive. And honestly, I still regret it when I have once in a while some recurrence. Interestingly, the recurrence is usually as not as early as you might think. It's not usually within four to six weeks. I've had recurrence in those cases at three to six months. So it's probably, you know, a couple cells here and there, you know, tiny little satellites that uh, you've missed because of the heat sink. Uh, I have to say kudos to microwave ablation. I don't think the heat sink is nearly as what it was with uh, radiofrequency ablation. So I think that's, yeah, it's just to end, summarize my answer to your question is I'm a little bit more aggressive and often I wish I was even more aggressive because that's when I treat the recurrence, I'm usually, I just go like, you know what? I'm going to hit it really hard. And most of the time, nothing happens other than a beautiful big ablation zone. Let me ask you this. How do you handle lesions that are directly adjacent to a dilated bile duct? Is it a similar approach? Uh, well, actually, I'll just leave it to you. Like, how, how do you handle lesions that are directly adjacent to like a big dial, uh, big bile duct? Big bile ducts. So when, when do I start be, being concerned? Well, the bile duct has to be of a good size, you know, like, uh, you know, four or five millimeters. And I'm like, oh, that's a big one. And then the other one is, uh, what type of ducts am I talking about? Some peripheral ducts that big? I mean, okay, man, we'll, we'll just atrophy it and move on. Uh, I start getting concerned when it's, you know, the main right or the main left. That's concern. Sure. Obviously, we'll try to take advantage of, uh, the, uh, of directing the tip of the needle towards it. But my first step is, does this patient need to be optimized? What's his billy? Is Billy's high? I, you know, you'll get an ERCP or a PTBD, depending if you're a good candidate for one, uh, one thing or the other. So, I mean, I'll try to, to drop that billy. I'll try to decompress those bile ducts. And I think that's the best thing to do. Decompress your bile ducts before uh, you ablate that patient. And if you cannot, then take advantage of the physical properties of the needle. Hopefully it's not diffuse bile ducts all over the place because then you're going to be really stuck. I, I will say 10 years ago, I was in a, a national conference where... You know, the panelists were contraindication. Contraindication to microwave ablation is dilated bile ducts. And two to three years within my ablation practice, I was like, nonsense. That's really what it was. <laughs> Total nonsense. Uh, absolute nonsense. Then, you know, we're going to start denying people left and right for so many reasons. You know, I mean, put a PTBD in it. Uh, send them to your friendly ERCP guy to decompress them if it's a bile issue. Otherwise, you know, like most patients can probably be ablated. But obviously, if it's, you know, Billy of... Uh, six, seven, eight, and then it's bi dilated bile ducts all over the liver, then you may be causing a lot of harm. But most, most importantly, you as an interventional radiologist, you're in a very good position, even if you run into a complication, to treat and help that patient afterwards. Can you, uh, address for some of the uh, younger uh, listeners, can you kind of talk about like what the unsaid risk is, like whenever you're having a lesion that's really close to uh, a bile duct? It depends how dilated it is. That, that would be sure, the first thing sure. that I'm going to say. The worst thing you're going to deal with is that patient is going to deal with a stricture of that bile duct. I and mean, if it's if the main right, I mean, that's a bad stricture. Uh, he's going to get obstructed and he's going to come back to you with cholangitis. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing, if you uh, injured that bile duct, you're going to end up with a biloma, a leak, infection. 
Uh, if he was cooking just a little bit, a little bit of a, a little bit of a cholangitis, you know, before before UKs, or he's a, one of those patients who has altered surgical anatomy or previous history of spinteronomy, he has a few bacteria brewing in there, and right after your ablation, in two to three days, he might develop pretty bad, uh, you know, infected biloma. So, you know, bile is not forgiving, and that's why we try to stay away from the gallbladder, as we all know. Bile has a few bacteria just lingering there, waiting to cause problems. Uh, and it's not pretty to ablate somebody and have this terrible stricture, comes back to you with cholangitis, and these strictures are very tough to deal with, and you may not even be able to cross it, and you don't want to have just an external drain for one of these poor patients without the ability to reconstruct his bile duct. So... These are good conversations to have uh, with your patients when you're dealing with uh, one of these cases. There are tools that you have to deal with and try to not uh, run into those problems. You know, dial, uh, you know, drain your patients, have that billy drop down, uh, and take advantage of the physical properties of the needle. If not, have a good conversation with your patient. You know, it's cancer, bile issues. One thing is going to get. Sure. Agreed. So let me take a left turn a little bit. I know we've been talking a lot about HCC, but and this could still be HCC. It could be multifocal HCC. Do you have a limit as to the number of lesions that you want to ablate before you start thinking about like another treatment modality? That is a good question, right, Chris? Because it doesn't seem like there is anything written in the literature. People just right. kind of like mention things here and there. You want to go by Milan criteria and say no more than three? That's, I mean, we're going to lose a lot of patients. Yeah, seems conservative, Ex right. Yeah, we're going to lose a lot of patients. Then somebody told me once, oh, well, four. And I'm like, based on what? Why four? <laughs> because it's one more than three? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously you can do more. You know, my surgical colleagues, you know, when they start like uh, doing their burns, they're like, oh, yeah, I burned uh, eight lesions. Yeah, I mean, you have the benefit of doing an intra-op. So they don't seem to have a limit of how many lesions they zap intraoperatively. Uh, so should we have a limit? Well, maybe, you know, I mean, sometimes it's very tedious. And if you ablate eight lesions in the same session, knowing that you are ablating, let's say, I don't know, 30, 40 cc's of liver, that adds up to potentially sending the patient into liver failure. So we'll have to be smart about it. So I usually take up to six lesions. But what do I do? I try to do what I think makes sense. Why do them in the same sessions? You know, if I have them in the right, maybe, and you have a, if I feel like, you know, the left will take care of the patient, so I can freely maneuver in his right lobe now when he has a healthy left, okay, uh, and vice versa. But if I'm gonna try to target left and right, total of three lesions, three lesions, three lesions here, especially in a patient with HCC, it could be dicey. So what I do is I actually, I divide my, my sessions. I'm like, you know, come to me. Right lobe, we'll give you three or four lesions in that right lobe. And then we'll take care of the other one, two, three lesions, whatever you have in the left lobe. The test of time within two to three weeks, and look at his labs. It seems like he has tolerated it. There's no reason to rush. Rushing may, why are we rushing? We might be dealing with dire consequences. Okay, and so if I heard you uh, correctly, about three or four weeks in between treatment sessions, if you're going to take on the right lobe, then you're going to take on the le uh, left lobe in the second session, you wait about three or four weeks? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I never take it to four. Sometimes it goes to four just because of scheduling. But sure, yeah, usually sure. actually go for two to three, two to three. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So after you've done all the ablations, everything in, in your mind from a, a post-procedure standpoint uh, has been done and you have good adequate margins from your perspective, what does it look like as far as uh, how these patients get plugged into the IR system afterwards? Like how often are you seeing them? How often do they get imaging um, after the ablation? Yeah, after the ablation, uh, we usually, you know, perform a phone call to see how they're doing in uh, 48 to 72 hours. And then we do a uh, two-week telehealth clinic visit. Thank God for telehealth. It has helped us tremendously. Is that new with COVID? Was telehealth uh, a COVID result or did y'all have that in place beforehand? Uh, we had it in place beforehand, but it was because uh, it's some of the difficulties that we have uh, here getting patients to come back. We serve a lot of uh, underserved patients who live three to four hours. Uh, a lot of our patients are from Appalachia. And it's, although I say telehealth, but actually a lot of, it's truly telehealth. A lot of uh, our visits are actually by the telephone, not by the internet, because actually, you know, I mean, our rural communities, a lot of them don't have uh, internet. Sure. And the final follow-up is four to six weeks with an MRI. 
uh, MRI or CT, depending on the, you know, on the case. So that's usually the follow up, four to six weeks imaging follow up. For the first imaging follow-up and in the first clinic visit afterwards, does that first imaging serve as your baseline or is that actually an MRI or a CT to which if you see a small amount of residual disease that you will go in and treat, like based on that? Uh, that's a very good question, actually, Chris. That's a very excellent, excellent question. That's why they pay me the mid to low range bucks to, to come across with the good questions. Mid to low? Who do I need to talk to? This is just... <laughs> <laughs> actually, I, going back, they pay me the zero bucks to ask the oh, tough questions. Uh, tough crowd. A tough crowd you work with. That's right. If nothing to see here, we're good. We assume it's good and we continue our three months follow up. So we'll take this out of, uh, out of the conversation. If there is anything tiny, anything left uh, to be seen, whether it's in contra uh, by contrast enhancement, yeah, I mean, the usual thin, beautiful, smooth rim enhancement is assumed to be uh, post-inflammatory. If you have a big chunk of the tumor that correlates exactly with the tumor, <laughs> that uh, enhancing an arterial phase and washing out on venous phase, you're like, wow, uh, that was not a good case. That's when I was like, I don't think I did that one. That was not me. <laughs> one, uh, one of the fellows did that. One of the fellows did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one that, you know, yeah, it wasn't me. I was outside of the room. I was just telling mm -hmm. him what to do. Mm -hmm. So that's the case where like, it's a slam dunk. You know what? Uh, I, we need to repeat it. When it's sort of questionable, it looks kind of nodular. I see it on diffusion. We take the tumor board, have our diagnostic radiologist input, take a look at them and we make the decisions there. That's fair. So kind of rounding out this conversation, do you have, and this probably comes up all the time, like especially you're at a teaching institution, what's some good advice that you either give your younger colleagues or your IR fellows who are starting their ablation practice, whether it's from techniques or whether it's from building a practice? Um, what's some of the, like, the invaluable advice that you've learned along the way? Well, the first thing I would say is find a device that you're comfortable with and stick to it stick to it, know it very well. You know, fellows in training and junior colleagues often, you know, they're very attracted to shiny new objects. Uh, the newest, hottest trend in the market and in social media, like, oh, I said this one on Instagram. We definitely need to use this pro. Uh, yeah, just find something that's reliable, something that you'll have the opportunity to use over and over and over. And when you start, start slow. You know, I didn't start on my first year doing pericardiac lesions. I was like, oh yeah, I want to ablate lesions who are three <laughs> millimeters from the pericardium. That's probably a recipe for problems. Uh, so start slow, stick to your easy shots because those are the cases where you become comfortable with that device. You're gonna, as you get comfortable with that device, you'll be able to move on to the next stage of your ablation career and getting closer and closer to dicier territories. So I, I will say those are my, my two biggest advice. Start slow, get comfortable, now your device. Got it. And how about uh, resources for some interventional radiologists out there? Are there any um, papers or uh, sites that you've looked at that as you were kind of getting your uh, ablation practice off the ground that you thought, wow, these were these are good like foundational papers that either help you participate in tumor board or help educate uh, referring docs? I think... You know, one of the things that I've tried to, when dealing with re my referring colleagues is radiofrequency ablation is rather what's trusted out there. And if people now, radiofrequency ablation works. So when you talk to surgeons and hepatologists, radiofrequency ablation is something that instills trust in them of like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we know about it. We know it's been compared to uh, surgical resection. We know it's rather comparable up to 3.5 centimeter lesions. It's something that they now feel comfortable with. So your first step is to nail the literature that compares microwave ablation to radiofrequency ablation. So you can sell radio uh, so you can sell microwave ablation as equivalent or non-inferior to radiofrequency ablation. Sure. So there is a paper that I like, which is uh, in the Journal of Hyperthermia, um, International Journal of Hyperthermia. And it's a rather recent one from 2019, which compares microwave ablation to radiofrequency ablation in hepatocellular carcinoma. It's a systematic review and meta-analysis comparing both modalities. I think that looks at 14 studies, a combination of uh, retrospective studies and uh, cohort, uh, control cohort studies for lesions uh, specifically less than three centimeters. And it found no significant difference. You're not going to find papers out there comparing five centimeter radiofrequency ablation because 
it would it inherently had its limitations and uh, the local control starts to drop after 3.5. Also, there is a um, one of my favorite articles actually that I read recently actually was in 2019 by Dijon et uh, al., which was a systematic review of microwave ablation itself. Um, published in 2019, European Journal of uh, of Radiology. I think it was called um, Microwave Ablation, a systematic review um, of various FDA-approved devices. Why do I like the article and I use it in a lot of my presentations? Because you would learn a lot of the physical properties of microwave ablation. You'll learn that not all microwave ablation devices are made the same. Some are have different properties than others. Some may be better than others. And uh, you will also see something very important. You will see how the performance in ex vivo models has nothing to do with in vivo models, which if you're a fellow, you're going to see all these excited numbers in ex vivo models. And I'm like, oh, gee, I can ablate a six centimeter lesion with one probe and be done. <laughs> no, you won't. Right. Um, so I really like that, that, that paper by Dijon et al. Okay, nice. Um, and what we'll do uh, afterwards is, uh, for those uh, audience members, we'll link to both those articles in the show notes. All right, uh, Juris, is there anything that we did not cover? Any uh, stone left unturned that you wanted to uh, turn over for us? What can we say? Hi. I mean, my favorite topic is actually uh, microwave ablation of pericardiac lesions. Because there isn't really much out there, right? Uh, I think the University of Wisconsin did some some lab research on some porcine live pig models. And based on that, uh, it was estimated that, because the first question is, what is it pericardically? What, what does that even mean? Sure. How close? Two centimeters, one centimeter, 0.5 millimeters. What is it even? Uh, what does it even mean? Do you go by uh, how big the lesion is or should you go by what you think your end ablation margin should be? I mean, the logic says you should go, in my opinion, by the end margin ablation zone because that's what you think maybe the energy, uh, the heat energy is is reaching. Our colleagues at uh, uh, Madison, uh, University of Wisconsin, I mean, did a pretty interesting paper where they estimated that it was safe to ablate pericardic lesions up to five millimeters within the uh, pericardium based on the final ablation zone. And so I decided just to copy it and, and do it. And we did it, and I think we had like 15 patients, and we published it in the Journal of Trans Translational Gastroenterology and Hepatology, and we actually, we agree with them, and we concur that it is correct. There were some nuances that we discovered that, you know, per with pericardiac lesion. I mean, there is actually not everything that kind of looks next to the heart is pericardiac. There is a lot of things that might help your procedure be successful and safe. The diaphragm doesn't have the same thickness from periphery to its center. It doesn't. There is a big epicardial fat. And what did they say about fat? Fat is a great insulator for heat. So no, not all patients are made the same. Some patients have more uh, a good epicardial fat and some patients don't. Uh, and remember, you know, you always have the tip of the needle to direct towards the heart, which will give you some level of control. So that's one of the excited things. We like to push a little bit the possibilities when it comes to microwave ablation. Another topic that I we presented at the Society of Interventional Radiology last year is the feasibility of freely going through the lung and doing microwave ablation instead of doing 20,000 ancillary maneuvers uh, in order to microwave, you know, dome lesions. You know, sure. you, might end, you might end up with pneumothorax here and there, but that's what happens in a lung biopsy. Sometimes you might end up with the pleural effusion here and there. But that's it. That's about it. And if I can do my uh, my ablation zone and decrease the patient's anesthesia time, I mean, some of these patients, probably a two-hour anesthesia time is not good for them. Uh, and the likelihood of pneumothorax or uh, what I call lung complications did not seem to be more than a uh, lung biopsy, more than lung biopsies. Well, I think uh, one, after talking with you for an hour, I'm not surprised that you would you would be the one to like try the approach where you just go uh, through the lung right into the dome. Um, but that's good. So, um, yeah. So for the audience, we'll link to uh, both of those papers. So. All right. So 
Guys, to our audience, thank you for listening. If you guys enjoyed the podcast but want more, please check out the show notes to this episode. Those are going to usually be available about one week after we uh, put out the podcast, and you can find those at backtable.com. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to support the show, here are two easy ways. First, take one second and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on. This helps platforms like iTunes or Spotify know that you, our audience, value what we're doing and you're interested in getting our latest content as we're producing it. Second, if you're really getting a lot of value from these podcasts, please go to iTunes, leave us a short written review. This helps us in a lot of different ways. Plus, we love getting the feedback. That wraps things up. We'll see you next time on the Back Table Podcast. Tris, thank you, man. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me.